Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us guest Jacob Vanderslice, who's principal at Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the U.S. Van West has established a track record with over $195 million in real estate assets. Jacob and his partner's success is driven by a commitment to delivering an expertly executed adaptable strategy with an institutional investment approach. So let's give Jacob a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. So Jake, welcome to the show. Great to have you on today. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. So yeah, Jake, before we jump in, why don't you um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, what you do and how you got to this point in your in your career? Yeah, well, my name is Jake Vanderslice. I'm a principal at Van West Partners. We're a private equity real estate shop based out of Denver. And we focus on value-add self-storage uh, acquisitions and operations. Um, we've been in the self-storage business since 2015, and leading up to then, we were mainly uh, single-family guys. We've done a bunch of fix and flips all over the country. We did some adaptive reuse retail projects, some townhome development, and we got in the storage space in 15 because we we had studied it. We looked at the asset class for a while, and like the fact it was recession-resistant, durable, repeatable income streams, scalable. Um, so we got started off building a few development projects in Denver, and then we expanded to the Midwest um, back in about 2016 with some value-add deals. We just sold this portfolio actually a couple months ago. And then um, most of our deals leading up to 19 were done in single-asset syndications, and we launched Fund One in June of 19. We closed that out in August of 20. And then we launched our second fund last year, and close that early this year. And we just recently launched Fund 3. So mainly self-storage. We've got uh, 32 facilities around the country, mostly in the Midwest and Southeast. And um, whether we're building a new one or buying a value ideal, our, our target's always cash flow. We like our cash flow. Okay. And to that point, so what do you think, which do you think is more challenging and far as far as self-storage, so building from the ground up or buying an existing one? Well, we're we're getting back in the development business. Uh, we haven't built for a little while, and we've got a number of development projects in the pipeline. We're actually closing a land acquisition tomorrow. Um, the big difference between development and just buying an existing facility really, I think, is the risk profile. Um, in development, you've got not just in self-storage, but any development project, you've got the inherent risks of hard cost overruns, especially in this environment where materials and labor are just skyrocketing. Um, then you've got the risk of quantifying the revenue stream years down the road as the project delivers. So if you're building, it takes you a year to build, two to three years to lease up and stabilize. You have to lease up hundreds of units, and that takes time. So really just a lot of risk in the unknown. Um, 
we do our best to mitigate those risks and be conservative, but you know, it's development, right? It's inherently riskier. And as opposed to uh, an existing acquisition, if you're buying a deal that's got historic revenue in place, it's been around for a while, you know the existing income stream that you're buying. And chances are that's not going to go down unless you run it really poorly. And our intention on buying an existing value add deal is to obviously grow revenue over time and increase rates, uh, layer in ancillary revenue streams, control expenses. But again, it's inherently risky because you're buying a historic revenue stream that's quantifiable uh, versus building a, a brand new facility that's never been leased before. Okay. All right, great stuff, great stuff. So, um, so of course now we're getting um a lot of rate increases through the Fed. So, what would be your thoughts on investing in self storage during an economy of change such as such as what we're going through right now? Well, the the capital markets, as we all know, are very dynamic right now. We're we're in a rising rate environment. We're going to be in this environment until probably at least the end of the year. Um, we're being cautious in our underwriting assumptions. Um, we're definitely seeing different debt terms than we were this time last year. Um, one obvious one is our interest rates are higher, but um, we're also generally seeing shorter loan maturity dates. So if we were getting 10-year fixed financing a year ago, now it's five-year fixed financing. Um, as far as the asset class um, and times during during economic disruption, historically, Self-storage has performed well when there's um, an economic downturn or some kind of disruption event. Um, if people are moving more, they're gaining jobs, losing jobs, marriage, divorce, these are all demand drivers in storage. And we're certainly not wishing for a recession by any means, but we do know that if uh, the economy continues to soften, that it's historically been a really good asset class to be in. So we're still bullish on the strategy. Um, but Obviously, you've got to implement a high degree of conservatism and your debt assumptions and your revenue growth assumptions. And, you know, one big question we're asking ourselves is uh, us and a number of other operators have been successful at increasing rates the last couple of years. We've had the um, we've had the inflationary pressures of the environment we're in, but they're obviously on month to month leases. So you can raise rates as inflation increases and probably not get a lot of move outs. But I think the the portfolio, our portfolio, and I think the industry is starting to reach an inflection point where rates have gone up so much that consumers probably don't, they're probably not going to digest any more rate increases anytime soon. So we're watching for that fairly carefully. But yeah, we like the asset class. It's defensible. Everyone's on a month-to-month -month lease. We can respond real-time to supply and demand changes. And we think it's a good spot to be when the economy softens. So we're still going. Okay. And when you're looking at um, rent increases for, your, say, specifically your your value add acquisitions, how are you usually um, raising those? Is it on track with inflation, or do you just work that through your underwriting? How do you decide how much you're going to increase? Well, um, we we do our rate increases on a unit by unit level, and the frequency and amounts of the rate increases are really variable by the deal. Uh, if you think about every storage unit in our portfolio is being its own product type. We have thousands of products we're selling, right? And revenue management is simply put, um, pricing the right unit the right way at the right time. So for example, if you have a 10 by 10 that's right by the front door, um, that's going to be a different price than a 10 by 10 where you have to walk 200 feet to it. Someone's inherently going to pay more for that specific unit type. 
So we'll measure the number of customers we have in given unit types and the occupancy of that unit type. And then we'll also look at the duration of tenancy for our customer base in those units. If somebody just moved in two months ago, they're not going to get a rate increase for a while. But if someone's been there for two years, paying hundred bucks a month, um, they're probably going to digest a rate increase of maybe $10 pretty, pretty easily because they're not going to move over $10 a month. And we've upgraded the facility. We've We've added some additional amenities, like a new gate system, new camera system, uh, some repairs and maintenance stuff, some cosmetic stuff. Um, so yeah, the frequency and type of these rate increases really just varies. Um, but the one consistent thing we do is if someone's been there for a long time paying the same rate, they're going to get a price increase. Okay. All right. And I know you mentioned that you guys have funds. So um, creating a storage fund, how, how can you use that to scale your portfolio? versus syndication yeah well if you're you <clears throat> we do single asset syndications and we do funds and as you know but just to briefly cover a single asset syndication is as the name suggests one deal one capital stack one set of investors one llc um, and a fund has common elements uh, between a fund and a syndication but a fund is a collection of assets so one of the advantages um to a fund versus a syndication is the, the geographic and the cash flow diversification that a multi-property portfolio offers versus one deal. Inevitably in our portfolio out of 14 facilities in a given fund, maybe one quarter of one deal is behind forecast for whatever reason, but then it's balanced out by the other 13 deals that are on or ahead of forecast. And then inevitably the next quarter, another deal might shift to behind forecast for whatever reason. Um, but again, that one's balanced out by the other deals in the portfolio. Um, the fund strategy too is a little more uh, simple on the sponsor side because you're not you're not um, you're you're marketing to investors is more of a strategy than an actual deal. Um, so when you launch a fund, you've got your set of subscription documents, your terms, your your pitch deck, your offering, um, and then you're not making a new fund every time you buy a new deal. You're just adding that to the fund. So those are a couple of reasons we generally gravitate towards the fund strategy. But as I mentioned earlier, we are doing syndications in the development world uh, outside of our fund. Okay. And in your experience, is it more challenging to raise for one or the other? You know, it, it depends on the, the, the cycle of a fund versus syndication. So some investors don't want to be as, uh, investing in a blind pool fund because they don't have a good feel for where the fund's going to buy deals. I mean, we have a buying box as far as the deal types we're buying, but maybe somebody doesn't want to be in Michigan and the fund buys a deal in Michigan. I mean, we'll certainly listen to their opinion, but they don't really have any voting rights to say, no, the fund can't buy a deal in Michigan. Um, single asset syndications are generally um, for investors who want to kind of pick and choose the geographies they invest in. Um, even in Denver, we have a couple syndications we're, we're launching pretty soon. Someone might like one location over another because of traffic counts, because of population density, whatever the case might be. Um, but I mean, to actually answer your question, I think uh, investor appetites are pretty strong for both. It just kind of depends on the investor. We'll have a lot of folks, if we have one syndication going um, in addition to our fund, we'll have a lot of folks make capital contributions to both. Um, and some folks will just do the syndications and just do the fund. So kind of depends on their on their preference. Okay. And most of your um, funds and our syndications, are those 506B or C or a mixture of? Mixture They're 506C. Yeah, we, we've done C designations. 
uh, for a fair number of years on all the deals we've done. And for those of us listening who don't know what that is, that means that that offering can only accept accredited investors um, and verify their accreditation with a verification letter of some kind. Um, accredited means you have to make 200 a year if you're single, 300 a year if you're married, or have a million dollars in net worth outside your primary residence. So yeah, we do see designations and verify accreditation on all of our limited partners. Okay. And so, and if I believe I'm correct, so that, I mean, that opens you up to a lot more marketing opportunities, correct? So what kind of market- yeah, one, one advantage to it, exactly. One, one advantage is you can generally solicit. So you can get a, a list of potential investors you never had contact with before. You can send out an email marketing piece that says, hey, you know, look at our fund, look at our syndication. And that's totally legitimate and legal to do. If it's a B offering, um, you can only raise capital from pre-existing relationships. And the burden of proof on the pre-existing relationship definition is, uh, uh, it's kind of variable, I feel like. There's some gray area to it. Um, and the 506C versus the 506B is a lot more black and white. Um, anybody can invest as long as they prove accreditation. Um, so we, we tend to gravitate towards the C designation. Okay. And are you using a lot of digital marketing or is it mostly email? Are you doing a funnel? Which um, to your email? You know, it, it's um, it's a lot of different things. Um, a lot of our investors just come from word of mouth. We have we have folks who've been working with us for you know twelve years. Uh, they tell their buddies about it, and their buddies you know go to a happy hour and oh you're doing storage. I'd like to make an allocation. Um, we do a fair number of podcasts, just like this one. Um, we do kind of informational email marketing, educational pieces like updates on our fund portfolio and state of self storage. We do webinars. Um, we're also co- uh, part of a couple of uh, kind of capital raising mastermind groups that uh, pair up sponsors and investors and kind of help educate them on how to analyze a syndication or a, a fund opportunity. Um, so yeah, a variety of different avenues. But um, yeah, the days of uh, you know greasing hands at the country club is are kind of over <laughs> to a degree. Um, you, you still can raise capital doing that, but a lot of it's word of mouth and just. Um, you know, having a good kind of thought leading presence online, which uh, ours is better than it used to be, but uh, we have a lot to improve there for sure. It's a, it's a never ending effort. Right? Yeah. Work, work in progress, right? Yes. Yes. It's been a work in progress for many years. <laughs> All right. And so you guys are in the great state of Colorado. So that, let's talk about location and choosing your self storage location. How do you go about what, what attributes do you look at as far as location when you're you're looking to build our acquire. Well, I would say we're we're a little more um, deal focused and a little a little more geographically agnostic to a degree. <clears throat> so there's certain markets we're just not targeting for a variety of reasons, like uh, the Northeast. We're not looking up there too carefully. Not that there's anything wrong with the Northeast, but we're just we're not we're not looking up there. Um, if we find a new deal in a new market that we haven't been in before, for example, um, we're doing three acquisitions in Oklahoma in about a month and a half. We've been looking in Oklahoma for a while, um, but the acquisitions are in undersupplied submarkets. There's an opportunity to raise rates. Uh, there's good population density, and and really in storage, you're may, you're mainly looking for for a couple of different um, primary metrics before you invest in a given market. One is the supply ratio, and that's the ratio of the number of square feet available for self-storage against the population. Nationally, there's about seven or eight or eight square feet per capita. 
Historically, if you're well over that, a market you might say is oversupplied and well under that, it's undersupplied. It kind of depends on the rates because if it's a low rate market, we've seen those submarkets able to sustain a higher um, square foot per capita because more customers can afford to store if rates are cheap versus Seattle, for example, rates up there are $2.50 per foot per month. And not a lot of people can afford to pay that rate. So mm -hmm. if more product gets in that high high rate market, rates are going to go down. So we look at supply ratios first. And then beyond that, we're looking at income demographics and we want to see population growth. But rooftops and density are very important. Um, you don't want to buy deals in overly rural locations uh, just because the consumer base isn't there to store. So we look for rooftops, okay. density, and traffic counts. Um, and primarily beyond self-storage specific um, metrics, we look for just good real estate, right? Well-located, good story to it, uh, purchasing at a discount for market value. So yeah, we'll, we'll look all over the country, but mainly we're focused in the Midwest and Southeast and the South. Um, we did our first Arizona acquisition about two months ago. And then, like I mentioned, we have some deals coming up in Oklahoma, um, Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Uh, Florida has been a good market for us. The Carolinas, Georgia, um, nothing in Texas yet, but we're we're looking someday. Okay, yeah, there's plenty here for sure. I mean, like like you said, it's about about the numbers, though, right? The numbers have to make sense. Yep, agreed. And you mentioned um, you guys just sold a portfolio. Was that a, where was that one? The one you just sold? Yeah, it was. Um, these were the first storage deals we ever did starting in about 2015 and um there were four properties in denver and four properties in milwaukee so the denver properties um two of them were ground-up development projects that we built starting in 15 and 16. Um, one was a reposition from an office building into storage uh, mm -hmm. and a fourth in denver was a value-add acquisition we did a small expansion on it out by the airport and the milwaukee deals uh, none of those were ground up. One of them was a certificate of occupancy purchase. One was a value add. Um, one had an expansion component to it and another value add. Okay. And all those went to one, one, one buyer? Yeah, we sold, we sold those to extra space at the end of May. Yep. Okay. Congrats on that. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we we generally don't love selling, but we had held the portfolio for a little while, and it was a good time to monetize just given how much cap rates have compressed. So uh, it was a nice liquidity event, but um, we like our cash flow. And when you sell, your cash flow goes away. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So self-storage and retirement. I think I heard you talking about this on one of your uh, other podcast appearances. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and how you'd recommend that to investors? So we're talking about investing in a self-storage deal with uh, an IRA? Correct. Yeah. Um, without getting too far in the weeds, uh, I mean, the implications of investing in a fund or syndication through a re retirement account, kind of, they're kind of similar across different real estate asset classes, whether it's storage or multifamily or industrial. The considerations are kind of the same. Um, one consideration is you have the the risk of trigger, uh, triggering unrelated debt financed income uh, if the fund or syndication uses leverage. Mm -hmm. And all that means is you could be taxed on the ratio of your distributions um, that the fund uses leverage. So if the fund's levered at 60%, you might have taxable income on 60% of the distributions the fund makes. 
Now, with that being said, I think the the tax detriments of doing that um, are not nearly as as meaningful as the advantages to using leverage when used responsibly, because leverage increases returns on equity if, again, done responsibly. Um, so we have a number of, uh, actually a lot of investors who invest in our deals with self-directed IRAs. Um, but just understanding the, the consequences on the tax side is important. Um, beyond the UDFI issue, um, the main disadvantage to it is, is they're not enjoying the depreciation during the whole period um, and being able to use those passive losses to offset other passive gains. But the advantage is when there's a liquidity event, um, they're paying uh, much less tax on depreciation, recapture, and capital gains. And the opposite would be a cash investment. And a cash investment will allow that person to enjoy the benefits of depreciation uh, during the hold period, but they'll have taxable income triggered when there's a sale on the depreciation recapture side, as well as the cap gain side. So upsides and downsides to both options. Okay, yeah, and to that point on depreciation, I assume you guys are probably doing cost segregation studies on most or all of your acquisitions or developments. We do, we do. Cost segregations are interesting because they're they're not cheap. And mm -hmm. if you have a fund with a mix of investors between retirement accounts and cash, and it's a fund level expense, um, that is benefiting the cash investors much more than the retirement account folks. So mm -hmm. yeah, we do cost segregation strategically, but we also have to do those kind of being sensitive to who it's benefiting and who it isn't. But when they're done, it can really as we know, supercharge those passive losses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the other things that slipped my mind when we were talking about um, rooftops to supply and demand, um, are you guys doing in-depth feasibility studies as well? You usually do those before you acquire, before you develop from the ground up? Uh, we, we don't commission third-party feasibility studies. We do our own feasibility studies. Um, okay. Those reports are helpful. Um, but we study our own deals and do our own analysis and, uh, we kind of know what to look for, what specifically we want to see in a submarket. There's a lot of different, depending on the location and the deal type, um, there's a lot of different things you want to consider like development. We're always looking for the, the risk of new product being introduced to the submarket, but that's an especially high risk that you want to understand in development, because if you're building a facility and two or three other operators are building facilities nearby at the same time, that's going to have a major negative impact on your leasing velocity and your rates when you come mm -hmm. to the market because it, suddenly the market got supply shocked. Um, if we're buying an existing acquisition at a cost per square foot that's well under a replacement cost, even if someone does build nearby, their basis is going to be higher. So their rates are going to have to be higher than ours to achieve the same total yield on cost. So that's something we're looking at either on acquisitions or development, but um, understanding that new supply risk is especially important in new development. And I'm sure there's a lot of good feasibility company, uh, feasibility study companies out there, but um, that's something that we've noticed that they haven't caught a few times, deals that we were aware of they, that they weren't. So we just do it ourselves. Okay. All right. And I mean, you guys have a fund, so how, how are you competing with the REITs or institutional buyers out there that are buying? Because I think as we discussed before, we hopped on some of the prices out here, that these facilities are being bought for just make no sense for 
a small investor or a small buyer. So how, how do you? Yeah, the, the answer is we're not competing well with them. Um, if it's a if it's a widely marketed deal uh, put out there by a national brokerage shop, um, we'll still make an offer on it and we'll underwrite it, but we'll miss it by orders of magnitude. Uh, there was a deal I think in January of this year, a portfolio. Um, we stretched a little bit responsibly, but we stretched and we, we were coming in at 25 million and it traded for 33, a couple months later. So we missed it by a very wide margin. So most of the deals that we're sourcing today and this year really, um, have been either off market or very poorly marketed. So we get deals from broker relationships. We do some direct to seller marketing, um, so we're not really bumping into the REITs much or the large mm -hmm. institutions just because of the deal sizing. Um, what we're hoping to do eventually, um, we have enough scale in our portfolio, is monetize it somehow with a large buyer. And we've seen really meaningful cap rate compression by selling in scale uh, versus selling one off. So for example, uh, one of our Florida deals today might trade for a six cap to one operator in the in that submarket, but if that facility is part of a five hundred million dollar portfolio, Blackstone might pay a four and a half cap. So, um, in that case, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, the REITs are not willing to do the heavy lifting that smaller operators are, and by heavy lifting, I mean just organically acquiring deals one at a time. Uh, all over the country, they want to they want to make big acquisitions all at once. Not so much the REITs, but institutional players. Um, they want they want immediate scale. They don't want to go out and build it. And how do you think they're able to make the numbers work at paying such exorbitant prices for these? Is it because of the scale they're able to still be successful, or do you think they are successful? Uh, that that is a mystery. Um, we we see trades constantly where we just don't know how they're getting to their pricing. And I think what they're doing, um, I don't want to say they're lying to themselves, but I think they're relying on um, assumptions in our models that are probably not easily achievable and not easily executed on, uh, like really fast revenue growth. I mean, if you look at revenue growth and self-storage in the last couple of years, it's been through the roof. Um, that cannot be sustained. You can't look at what your portfolio did in 2021 and assume that's going to happen the rest of 2022 and into future years. It's just, it's not sustainable. So I think they're underwriting very, very aggressive revenue growth. They're probably saying, hey, inflation's, you know, double digits. We're going to do double digit rent growth. Um, but eventually, as I mentioned earlier, your your customer base is going to hit a ceiling. Well, they're, they're just not going to pay more. They, they just can't, they won't. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I, I don't know how they're making their numbers work. Maybe it's a maybe it's a very low cost of capital. Um, maybe it's return expectations that are much lower than ours, or return targets that are much lower than ours. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, as as resistant as the asset class is to downturns, I do think we're going to see some pain in this space sometime in the foreseeable future with operators who just got too aggressive in their assumptions, and they're going to probably get over their skis in some cases. Okay. So looking five years, five, 10 years out, what, what would be your, what would be your opinion of the self-storage industry five to 10 years out as far as its performance? Well, um, you can only look backwards and not forwards, but I'll try to give my likely incorrect forecast looking forwards. 
Um, looking backwards, um, self-storage was one of the best real estate asset classes during the pandemic. It also had one of the lowest default rates on the debt side during the financial crisis back in 2008 and 2009. Um, so looking backwards, it's been resistant to disruption. Um, I think self-storage continues to emerge as a widely accepted asset class. More institutional players are in the space than they used to be. So I think it's here to stay. Um, you know, maybe we have self-driving cars in five or 10 years. So suddenly everyone's garage is empty and, you know, self-storage demand plummets, but who knows if that'll happen or not. Um, but I think it's here to stay. Um, you just have to, uh, you just have to underwrite very reasonable and achievable expectations in your model uh, that protect against the downside. But as far as where values and cap rates will be five or 10 years from now, I, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is um, if you have a cash flow, a cash flowing portfolio, cash flow is what gets you through soft times. If you have the cash flow to service your debt, make distributions, pay your operating expenses, um, everything else kind of takes care of itself to a degree. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, very good, very good. So Jake, before we um, hop off, why don't we, why don't I put you through the lightning round so I can see a little bit what makes you tick. Let her rip. Okay, okay. So it's just a softball. And what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Let's see. There, there's been a few of them. Um, right now, well, I'll tell you about a book that I read and a book that I'm reading. Um, a book that I read recently, I got to find anyone to mention on podcast, by the way, but it's called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hamden, Hamden Sides. And it's a, it's a story about uh, late 1800s polar exploration. And... These guys thought they could get over the top of the world because the uh, the water would melt once they got far enough north. And obviously, they found out that wasn't the case. They were stuck in the ice for months. And the story of what these guys went through was remarkable. And any pain we have in our you know daily existence uh, pales in comparison to what those guys went through. Um, a book that I'm on right now that I have not, uh, I'm probably about a third of the way through. I'm a big historic nonfiction guy. Um, and this book is, uh, let's see here. It is, it's called Spearhead by Adam Makos. Okay. And um, it's a story about a World War II tank crew uh, in Europe. And uh, it's got a great perspective from the American side and the German side at the same time. Uh, one of our investors recommended this to me, but um, I'm getting through it fairly quickly, but I just started it like a, like a week ago. So mainly like historic nonfiction. Uh, I have a hard time for whatever reason getting through business books. Uh, I don't oh, really? know why. Um, yeah, I like to listen to podcasts, but, you know, reading stuff like Good to Great, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I've, I've read them, obviously. But um, for some reason, my my short attention span uh, struggles. I, I like I like more entertainment <laughs> in my reading. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the nonfiction historic as well, but I, I do enjoy the business books, too, so. But yeah, yep. definitely a fan of the historicals. Okay, sweet. And if you could have a billboard, Jake, with anything on it anywhere, what would it say? Um, it would say take a risk. Take a, take risk. a risk. Take a risk. Yeah. A lot a lot of people we talk to have been, you know, they've gone to seminars and classes and spent all this money and they, they just never found the perfect deal um mm -hmm. 
So they keep studying and thinking, but never taking any action. So yeah, I think the billboard would say, take action, take risk. Um, the only way to learn about specifically real estate investing or really any investing for that matter is to take action. And there's no yeah. perfect deal. Every deal has a risk profile, um, but the best way to get started is to go out and do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I see that so often as well. I mean, the conferences and books and networking is great, but at the end of the day, you have to get out there and pull the trigger, right? Yep, and you have to fail a time or two. Uh, yeah. You remember our, our failures like they were yesterday and the successes, you know, they fade from memory quickly. Yeah, and to that point, perfect segue. So how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Yeah, um, one deal that comes to mind specifically, and I wish I could uh, offer a lesson that would apply in this, but maybe I can. We built a house out of uh, shipping containers and we thought we were gonna be able to build 10 of these a year, put them up really quick, put them up cheap. And this thing ended up taking longer and costing more than it would have taken had we stick built it normally. And we sold it and we lost a bunch of money and we walked away from that really just thinking, well, all we learned is don't build a house out of containers. And I think the bigger lesson in that is just focus. Um, you know, there's, I feel like there's kind of two schools of entrepreneurs out there. One school does one thing and does it really, really well. And another school has multiple things they experiment with. I think experimentation is very healthy, um, but experimenting too far outside your lane, especially when you already have an operating business and you try something else could be sometimes a distraction, sometimes a failure. Um, so I would say uh, blend your, your business targets and goals between experimentation, but also focus at the same time. Okay. So uh, the container house was a good example of a loss of focus. Yeah, and I actually, I think I saw, I forget where I saw it, but I saw something about houses being built out of shipping containers and somebody had it on Airbnb. So I guess they got it completed, yep. but what do you think the issue was with, what do you think the biggest challenge was with that project? Was it just getting, getting yeah, the... Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's uh, a lot of people that figure out how to do this. We were not one of them. And I think one of the main challenges with it, we, we built these in a plant in Nebraska. The plant was having some issues. But once you start cutting up shipping containers, you lose all their structural integrity. So if you just make it, you know, an existing footprint um, or keep the existing footprint in the container, it might work out okay. But we cut these things up so much, the amount of time we spent welding, reinforcing them again, putting them back together, all the steel costs just got out of control. So I think the failure there, aside from just lack of experience and execution, was just not contemplating how much work you would need to do once you started tearing these things apart. Okay, got it. All right, a couple of more and then you're out of here. So what is your favorite place to think big? Uh, favorite place to think big? Um, it's probably uh, hiking peaks. Um, mm. I listen to music when I run, but I don't listen to music when I'm hiking. And you get up there, you're breathing hard, um, nobody else is around, and you just have a clear state of mind, and you can kind of contemplate things you normally might not contemplate. Um, one place that I don't think big at well is my desk, because mm -hmm. I, I have meetings, uh, you know, notifications coming out of my phone. So yeah, I would say generally the the outdoors behind the Colorado, Colorado mountains is a is a good place uh, to accomplish that. Yeah, you're definitely in a great place for 
hiking and running. I'd say I'm pretty jealous of that. You guys got the perfect weather. We, the perfect... we are. Yeah. Summertime in Colorado, uh, there's there's few better places. Yeah, for sure. All right, and last one, Jake. Um, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, I would say small deals that are outside our wheelhouse. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not saying that to make it sound like I'm a big deal. We only do big stuff, but I'm a real estate entrepreneur, and we see like an opportunity that's relatively low cost basis. It's maybe outside of self storage or some of the residential we've done, and I used to want to go chase it no matter how small it was like, Oh, there's something to do here. Let's go figure it out. But we learned over time that the amount of time allocated to a deal is very similar, whether it's a really small one or a really big one, it's still the same underwriting. It's still the same third party reports. It's still the same bank mm -hmm. loan, same capital raising. And uh, we've gotten pretty good at saying no to just smaller gross dollar opportunities, even though they might make a good return. Um, the gross dollars that they'll spit out are relatively low just because they're tiny deals. Yeah. So, We've gotten a lot better at saying no to, to to smaller opportunities. Yeah, and then like you said, they usually take just as long to close as as a larger one would, right? So yeah, a five hundred k deal will take as much time or more than a five million dollar deal. Yeah, absolutely. All right, awesome, good stuff there, Jake. So Jake, before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you about investing, collaborating, what's what's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Yeah, we always love to talk shop about real estate. Uh, they can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. They can hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. All right, awesome. Yeah, we'll run those across the bottom of the screen for everyone. All right, so thanks so much, Jake, for joining us. This was uh, very informative. I'm sure the list has got a lot of great value out of this. So thanks for joining us. Well, Donald, thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it. Very, very kind of you. All right, likewise, buddy. I'll be talking more to you soon. All right. Take care. You too. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.